Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our third in our series on the sovereignty of God where we're looking at uh, lessons from the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. Our title today, as you can see from your outline, is Experiencing the Power of God. Remember, we've already uh, looked uh, previously at uh, at Daniel chapters 1, 2, and 3. Uh, not all of it, but uh, we've, uh, we've seen that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has, uh, has heard about the power of God and he has seen the power of God, and yet we discover that his life has not changed. And so in today's session, we see that he experiences the power of God. This is where we see the climax of God's dealing with a king. And as we read through this in a few moments, uh, I want you to uh, be looking for a a phrase that uh, appears four times, and it has to do with God's purpose. But again, by way of review, one of the things that we've noticed uh, in looking at the life of Nebuchadnezzar is certainly uh, one of his major problems was that of pride. Uh, Webster defines the term pride in about uh, three different ways that we use it in, uh, in English. Uh, it's first defined as an over-high opinion of oneself, exaggerated self-esteem, uh, conceit. Uh, a second definition is a sense of one's own dignity or worth. Uh, and then a third definition is delight or satisfaction in one's achievements, possessions, children, etc. <clears throat> and certainly when the Bible talks about pride, it's talking primarily about the first of those, an over-high opinion of oneself, exaggerated self-esteem and conceit. And we certainly see that in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. For example, uh, some of the verses from the Bible that have to do uh, with pride, uh, the one from Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Obviously, God is talking about arrogance right here. Now, there is a, uh, the good kind of pride, uh, and that was one of the alternative uh, uh, definitions that Webster gave, and that's illustrated in Second uh, Corinthians chapter seven, verse four, where Paul, in writing to the uh, folks there at Corinth, uh, at the church at Corinth, said, "I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged." So here's that uh, that third type of pride. It's a uh, it's a satisfaction in one's achievements, possessions, children. Obviously, here children in the Lord. And then there's another verse, Galatians chapter six, verse four that illustrates that again, and also perhaps illustrates the second one, uh, a sense of one's own dignity or worth, where Paul writes in, Gala uh, in Galatians 6, verse 4, each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. So there the pride that the Bible talks about is, is not one of an over-high opinion of oneself, 
it's uh, again uh, a sense of worth that we have based on uh, uh, the dignity that God has given us because we are made in His image. Uh, again, related to uh, satisfaction in the achievements that we uh, that we accomplish. It is good to remember, though, that when we accomplish things, that we accomplish them because God empowers us to do so. Paul wrote, "I am what I am by the grace of God." But uh, getting back to our story, some of you thought probably we'd never get back there. But uh, getting back to our story, when you think about this whole issue of pride and you think about it in terms of God's plan for Nebuchadnezzar, one of the things that we see from Jeremiah 27 is um, God has, uh, had already decreed what, uh, what Jeremiah was to do. It says, This word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, With my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it, and I give it to anyone I please. Notice, God, it's His creation. He can do with it what He wants to. Now I will hand all your countries over to my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now remember, at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is not a believer. He's a polytheist, and yet God refers to him as my servant. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him, and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes. Then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. So, notice God's plan is that Nebuchadnezzar is going to subjugate the land of Judah, but then there is a time when Babylon's time runs out, and Nebuchadnezzar's empire will be subjugated. And then uh, you'll recall this from our uh, study in Daniel chapter 1, those verse 2 verses. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his God. So again, notice God is in control here. He is the one who sets up one and puts down another. So God, in a sense, is uh, from those two passages in Jeremiah and Daniel, while there are obviously some personal implications there, he's also talking about some national implications, some, some political implications. But notice there are also some very personal uh, implications as well that, that relate to salvation. In Daniel chapter 2, and that's what we talked about in our first session, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a statue, and the king heard about the power of God. That is, that uh, what, he, what he heard eventually was that he was a part of history. He was not the center of history himself. God is the one who is the center of history. But of course, Nebuchadnezzar really didn't get that, uh, didn't get that message. And then in Daniel chapter 3, you'll recall the contest at the furnace. Daniel was not uh, present at that time. That was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But we, the king saw the power of God as, uh, as God prevailed over the Babylonian gods. You'll recall we talked about the fact that it was, uh, it was as if uh, uh, God had cast down the gauntlet and said, okay, uh, we'll just have a contest. Remember, the Babylonians worshipped a fire god, and those three uh, 
Hebrew uh, immigrants were thrown into a fiery furnace. They suffered no harm, nor did their clothing. The only thing that suffered harm were, was the, uh, were the bindings that, uh, that they had tied them up, and uh, those were burned away from them. They didn't smell like smoke when they came out. And the point there was that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was not going to endure forever, but the kingdom of God would endure forever. And so that brings us to, uh, to, today, to today's study where we're looking at Daniel chapter 4. And remember, one of the things that, uh, that, that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he says that we need to be careful not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but we're to think soberly. And that was a problem for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, now again, remember as we're reading through this, look for that phrase. There's a phrase that that reappears. Uh, I think it's uh, I think it's used about four times in here, and it has to do with God's purposes. So let's uh, let's begin uh, by reading. King Nebuchadnezzar to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world. May you prosper greatly. Notice, this is an official paper of a Gentile king that's included in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who, uh, who wrote this. And so uh, it's just been included in, uh, in the Scriptures. In verse 2 it says, It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Uh, think about how that differs from chapters 2 and 3. Uh, terminology like, who is the God that's going to do so and so? Remember when he said that to the, uh, to the three Hebrew guys? Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, how is it that God's going to deliver me from your hand? Uh, there's something that, hap that has happened in this man's life when he talks about, let me tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. Again, it, this is written in first person. And so this, this is the testimony, the personal testimony of a Gentile king who has apparently uh, had some personal dealings now with the, uh, with the true God. Now he gets into the story beginning in verse 4, his, his personal testimony. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. Notice he's satisfied to start with, and then all of a sudden he had a dream. Now this is not the first dream that he's had, obviously. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. Notice uh, they troubled him before. Uh, this particular dream terrified him. So I commanded all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. So here we have another failure by, the, uh, by his spiritual advisors. You have to wonder, why didn't he just go ahead and call Daniel to start with? It says, finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar. Uh, remember, that, that, that's 
Daniel's Babylonian name, and it means Prince of Bel. Uh, Bel is a is a reference to Marduk, who was one of the uh, the chief deities of uh, of Babylon. It says uh, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God. Notice at this point in Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, he is still an unbeliever as far as the true God is concerned. He says, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed." In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger. Now, incidentally, the word that is translated uh, in the Old Testament, messenger, is the same word that is sometimes translated angel. So it could be either one. He could, he could be saying, I looked, and there before me was an angel. But we'll, we'll use the terminology here that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's used in this, uh, in this translation. It says, In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee, flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Now, Here's perhaps, in fact, I'm sure, what was alarming, because notice the change in pronouns. Uh, notice up to now, it was let the animals flee, uh, flee from under it, referring to the tree. The tree is an it, and the birds from its branches. Um, and then he says, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Notice the pronoun changes from it to him, to the personal pronoun. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. Now what, what, what are seven times? Well, some, some people think that that means seven years, and it may mean that. Uh, sometimes the the number seven is considered by some uh, Bible scholars to be the number of completion. So it could mean that until the uh, specified completed amount of time has passed by. So it could be either one of those things. And at least for me, it's uh, it's not clear uh, whether it's either specifically seven years or whether it's some time of completeness. It says, the decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kings of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest, the lowliest of men. Notice, here's a, here's a purpose statement. What is the purpose of the dream? 
The purpose of the dream is so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone He wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. Now there's a great verse, and it'd be a great verse to hear uh, expounded at, uh, at some political prayer breakfast on uh, January the 2nd or 3rd sometime, but uh, it's unlikely that you're going to hear that one. Nebuchadnezzar goes on to say, he says, now remember, he's, he's, he's relating the dream to, uh, to Daniel at this point. He says, this is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Notice, uh, Nebuchadnezzar really has tremendous confidence but again, you have to wonder, well, if he's got all this confidence, why didn't he call Daniel in to start with? And we just, we don't know. Was Daniel in some sort of semi-retirement or something? Who knows? It says, then, uh, then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. That's the second time we've heard that word. So the king said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its meaning alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Now, what does that say about the relationship that these two men had developed, the king and the advisor, Daniel? Uh, here's, a, uh, here's this great prophet, Daniel, who's always been true to God, who's always done the right thing. Now, I don't mean he was sinless. But I mean, as we as we read his story here in the in the book that bears his name, he sought to do the right thing. He has not wanted to uh, to compromise in any way, and yet he says, "My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries." In other words, I am so sorry that this applies to you. It says a lot about um, apparently his uh, his love and his devotion for his uh, for his sovereign, even though at this point in the story his sovereign, as he's telling it, Nebuchadnezzar is still an unbeliever. I think there's a real application, obviously, for the for the workplace here, and that is that you know a lot of times we work for people who are not Christians, but we're supposed to do the right thing. We're supposed to uh, we're supposed to be a good employee. We're supposed to uh, seek what's uh, what is best uh, for the company, as long as the company is not asking us to do something illegal or immoral. Uh, remember again this, and this goes back to our second lesson. Uh, just as uh, if government requires us to do something that God forbids, or the uh, government. Uh, forbids us to do something that God requires, then we are obligated in those instances to civil disobedience. And the same way with our jobs. Uh, but we can seek the best for the company, and we can uh, and we can seek to uh, to build up uh, the man who is uh, who is in charge, the owner of the company, the CEO, or whatever, by doing a good job and seeking to to do the right thing to provide uh, good customer service or whatever it is that we're, uh, that we're supposed to do. And, uh, and God will honor that. Well, let's see what happens. It says, and Daniel begins to tell him what the, what the dream is all about. He says, The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, 
with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. And that's probably what the king was afraid of and why he was so terrified. Because remember again that in the beginning, you know, you got this huge tree and then all of a sudden the tree, somebody shows up with a chainsaw or an axe and cuts the tree down. Trees down and there's a stump that's sticking out of the ground and it's got these uh, metal bands around it. But that pronoun changes from it to him and that must have been alarming and now it's the king knows that that's true that this huge tree which was emblematic of him is now been is going to be cut down you o king are that tree you have become great and strong your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth so Daniel here is sort of recounting the the history of Nebuchadnezzar and, and essentially the Neo-Babylonian Empire. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. Again, notice the change in the pronouns as, as you read that and you think about it. Then Daniel says, this is the interpretation, O king. Now, here's, here's what the king's waiting for. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree. What's a decree? God is stating something. God is saying, this is the way it's going to be. Let me tell you, there's no, uh, there's no supreme court that overrules God, God's decrees. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone that he wishes. Notice, Daniel here confronts the king with his history, how, how great his empire has been, uh, the tree is emblematic of that. His, his greatness has grown till it reaches the sky. His dominion reaches to distant parts of the earth. And what's Nebuchadnezzar's response been? It's been one of pride. And God says in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. So the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was giving all the credit to his false deities was a bad, bad thing. And notice again, why was this happening to King Nebuchadnezzar? Well, again, it's stated in this purpose. This is all going to happen. You're going to be driven away. You're going to eat grass. You're going to be drenched with the dew of heaven. This time, whatever it is, 
is going to pass by until what? Until you, you, King Nebuchadnezzar, until you acknowledge that the Most High, excuse me, the true God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone He wishes. Now, if you're Daniel, what sort of counsel would you give the king at this point? Well, sure, you would counsel the king to repent. And that's exactly what uh, Daniel is going to do. Let's keep reading. No, notice there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, he's talked about the history and he's talked about the humiliation that's to come, but he also has some hope in here. A lot of talk about hope these days, and some of it we don't particularly care for. See, the hope that's discussed is, seems rather hopeless to some of us. But the truth is, is that this hope that God gives in this awful, awful dream is real. And notice, that's what comes next. In, uh, what is that, verse 26, he says, "...the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots..." means that your kingdom will be restored to you. Notice, it's not, and the next word, it will be restored to you when, not if, not if you do so and so. There's no question about whether whether you were going to or not. You're going to. But it says your kingdom will be restored when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Now notice, again, there's the purpose being stated. And how gracious is God to do this. So you, you and I, when, when we get disgusted with people, we say, you know, I don't want to have anything else to do with you. And, uh, but he's counseling the king to repent. Now, this, he's not talking about salvation by works. If you do this, then it'll all be, it'll work out just fine. Well, you remember the, uh, the rich young ruler that Jesus confronted. You know, what, what shall I do to have eternal life? And uh, what did Jesus say? You know, well, you need to sell sell all this stuff. Well, it wasn't you need to do this in order to be saved. Jesus was putting his finger on the man's problem. He was a covetous man. His He was worshiping his wealth. And it says he went away sorrowful because he had great riches. Jesus wasn't telling him, well, the way to be saved is by giving all your stuff away. He was saying, you've got another God that you've got set before you, and that's your riches. And he put his finger on it. Now, there's only one way to be saved, and that's by faith alone, through great, uh, through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's, there's no getting around that. Now, uh, he gives him the advice to repent. He says, therefore, in verse 27, Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. You have to be real careful when you start giving kings advice. But again, remember, there's not only this relationship as, uh, as, as sovereign to servant, but there's also this uh, apparently uh, somewhat of a friendship between these two men um, that has developed. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what's right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. Now again, he's not talking about salvation by works here. He's saying, you've got a problem with pride. You've got a problem with arrogance. And you just treat people any way you want to. You need to repent. You need to, you, you need to treat your people right. That's what, that's what God requires. And it would demonstrate that, that uh, brokenness in your life. Then it says, um, all this happened 
to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, and that's Paul's there. Twelve months later. All right, so for twelve months, he, Nebuchadnezzar's had the dream. The dream terrified him. None of his wise men other than Daniel could tell him what it meant. He calls Daniel in. Tell, Daniel tells him exactly what it means and then gives him some advice to repent, kind of like Joseph before Pharaoh. You know, the, the dreams that Pharaoh had had that, that were so terrifying, the, the, the skinny cows, the fat cows and skinny cows, the fat corn and the skinny corn. What does all this mean? Whoa, there's a, there are great years, seven great years coming. There are seven awful, awful years of famine that you're just not going to believe. And Joseph could have turned around and walked off then with, uh, you know, whatever that the king was, uh, Pharaoh was going to give him. But instead of doing that, Joseph just took another breath and said, Now, if I were in your sandals, here's what I'd do. I'd appoint somebody, this, 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 this. And, of course, Joseph had been learning that over this period of years that he was in prison as he was learning you know, first of all, domestic responsibilities at uh, at Potiphar's house, and then he learned institutional responsibilities there in the prison, um, and all of that time and all of that uh, that practice of learning those things, learning the skills, learning what he needed to do. That's what equipped him to be ready to be chief operations officer over all of Egypt and in charge of not only national but also international trade and affairs and, and things like that. So here it says all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, notice God's patience. In Romans chapter 2 it says, or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? Notice, the reason that God is patient is so that we'll come to repentance. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Well, what does that 12 months of respite, as it were, say about God? Well, it, again, it speaks of His patience, that God is long-suffering. What does it say about the king? It says he was stubborn because he didn't repent. And see, that's the, that's the way it works out naturally, because unless God works in our lives first, unless He uh, regenerates us, bringing us to life. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Our minds are hostile toward God. We don't understand the things of the Spirit of God. You say, well, he, he, but he could, he could have chosen to do so. I said, no. The, the, we make choices based on the way we think and based on the way we feel. And if our minds are hostile toward God, we're always going to choose away from God. And think about the king. There's a There's a... Uh, passage in Proverbs chapter 29. Seems like it's about the first verse. Uh, uh, he who being often reproved is suddenly cut off, and that without remedy. Think about it. King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, the, the, the vision, the dream is interpreted. Uh, here's what's going to happen. Unless you, you've, you've got to, you've got to acknowledge 
that the Most High rules and He gives it to, to whoever. He gives kingdoms to whoever He wants to give them to. Now, something dreadful is going to happen to you. The kingdom ultimately going to be restored. But this is going to happen so that you will acknowledge all of this. But see, it doesn't happen that first month. It doesn't happen right after the Daniel tells him what the dream means. It doesn't happen the next month. And it doesn't happen the next month. Six months later, still hasn't happened. So if you're the king, what do you think? Well, you know, maybe he thought, well, you know, Daniel's a great guy and he sure gets it right most of the time, but maybe he just missed it this time. But again, see, here's the stubbornness of the king, an unwillingness to repent. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, in the old King James Version says, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are fully set in them to do evil. What's he saying? When you get by with something, when the, when the consequences don't follow soon after a deed, you think, so what? Nobody cares. And in this case, that's apparently what Nebuchadnezzar's thinking. Yeah, you know, God doesn't really care about all of this. What, what, is, what does He care? But He says, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, and notice his words, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, what is that? Sure, it's pride. It's arrogance. Pride. The best way to spell pride is P-R capital I D-E. The I is I am central to everything. Arrogance. There's an old saying that pride is the only disease in the world. It makes everybody sick except the person that has it. But here you see, uh, you see, you see, look, I've done all this. Isn't this great? Well, while the, the next verse says, the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone He pleases. Notice, there's that statement of purpose again. Again. Think about that. Uh, in Psalm 115, it talks about uh, it talks about idols. Um, in those first uh, in verses three and following, it says, "Our God is in heaven; He does whatever pleases Him." But their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but they can't speak. Eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. And those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. See, we become like what we worship. And God is going to put the thumb on Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, He already has. He says, the time has come. In verse 33, it says, Immediately, 
what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. See, what, what's the lesson here? There's a real danger in pride. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar's a proud man. What's just happened to his pride that he's running around eating grass like cattle? That he's living out with the animals? That his hair's growing and he's got all the, I guess, like split ends? His hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, his nails like the claws of a bird. Um, where's your pride now, Nebuchadnezzar? You see, God knows how to bring us low. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. And incidentally, what else? What does this say about God's promises? See, God doesn't make threats. God makes promises. And He keeps His promises. And He kept His promise to Nebuchadnezzar. He, he first showed him patience. But Nebuchadnezzar never repented. He was just... He, he kept going stubbornly his own way. And yet... And yet God was, was showing him patience and being merciful to him at the time. But God's going to be merciful. Because remember, what do we say? That God, not if He repented, but when He acknowledged, when He turned around, when He changed His mind, when He acknowledged that the most rule high, then, then His kingdom would be restored to Him. And that's verse 34. Now again, remember, Nebuchadnezzar is telling that this is first person. He, he has experienced this. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. Notice, here's mercy. Oh, God's had mercy on him. God, God has mercy on whom He desires, and He hardens whom He desires. He hardened Pharaoh because He was going to demonstrate His power through Pharaoh so that the whole earth would be awed by God's power. Turned Egypt into an environmental and ecological disaster area in just a matter of months. But here, for Nebuchadnezzar, he shows Nebuchadnezzar mercy. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar deserved it and Pharaoh didn't deserve it? Of course not. They both deserved. Just like you and I deserve the wrath of God. If God were fair to us, we'd all get a one-way ticket to the pit. But God has a people He's chosen before the foundation of the world, some from among the Jewish race, some from among the Gentile race. But those people He has set His affection upon, and He will bring them to Himself. He will show them mercy. Not because they deserve it. No, no, no. They deserve the same fairness that the unbeliever will get. But they'll show mercy because of what Christ has done on their behalf. Because He was pleased to do so. At, that, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Here's the turnaround. Here's the effectual grace when God has mercy on the king, when God turns him around. Then I praise the Most High. 
I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? My goodness, what in the world has happened to Nebuchadnezzar? I'll tell you what's happened to him. God's purpose has been fulfilled. God has turned Nebuchadnezzar around. It sounds as if God has saved Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, I'm sorry, at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Notice, that's not a prideful statement. He's saying, this is what happened. They sought me out. I was restored. He didn't say, I ascended my throne. No, he says, I was restored to my throne. My advisors put me back on the throne because my sanity had returned. Whether or not they understood what happened to him, we don't know. Certainly Daniel understood. But what had God promised? Back in verse 26, what had God promised? The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. You see, God keeps His promises. And it was the plan of God to bring Him low and then to bring Him back up. See, we just finished the football season. And a lot of one, of one of the exciting things, one of the really exciting plays in football is called the double reverse. Well, football's not the only one that has a double reverse. God has a double reverse. He says that the, the way to down is up, and the way to up is down. He who exalts himself will be brought low. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Think of the Lord Jesus. What did He do? He stepped out as the eternal Son. He stepped out of eternity into time and space and humbled himself and became obedient. He became as a servant and became obedient even to the point of death, the death, the ignominious death of, of the cross, the crucifixion. And Paul goes on to talk about that and as he writes to the church at Philippi and he says, and therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Son humbled himself, and God the Father exalted him to His own right hand. I was restored, Nebuchadnezzar wrote, to my throne and became even greater than before. That's not a prideful statement. That's just what happened. Now, notice the, uh, that final verse, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything He does is right and all His ways are just 
and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Did Nebuchadnezzar learn that firsthand? You bet he did. He didn't learn that by seeing the power of God in action. He didn't learn that by hearing about the power of God. He learned that how? That's right. When he experienced the power of God. How different is that from what we saw in the last couple of sessions? Look at those first uh, the verses 2 and 3 again on the flip side of your notes. Daniel chapter 4. Notice again what he said as he began this. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for who? For me. How great are His signs. How mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Good grief. This man has had a change of heart. You know, there are several um, applications I guess we can draw. We'll, we'll look at some that I've got in your notes there. But think about this, how easy it is for us to give up on people. You know, here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's apparently near the end of his life. And yet, God is going to show mercy on him. You know, we, we should pray for people. We should witness to people. Think about some of the members of our family. Some of our friends who don't know Christ, and we say, "Oh, he just—he's just so negative on stuff about Jesus. He just—I try to say something about Jesus, and he just—he just becomes profane over it." Well, keep praying. When you get opportunities, talk about—don't preach to him about about himself so much. Just talk about what what Christ has done in your life, and the peace and the joy, and those things that, that you're experiencing. You know, you, you think about those two criminals that were crucified with the Lord Jesus. You know, there they are on either side of Jesus. And when, when it all starts there that early that morning, nine o'clock in the morning, the three of them, Jesus in the middle, the criminals on either side. Both those criminals are cursing. They're cursing everybody around the cross. They're cursing themselves. They're cursing uh, each other. They're in there both cursing Jesus and just, you know, just giving him really a hard time. But then all of a sudden, one of them stops the cursing. And in fact, he speaks to the, looks past Jesus to the guy on the other cross. And he says, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. He says, you need to ease up, man. You know, this, this fellow in the middle, he hadn't done anything worthy of what he's getting. We deserve what we're getting. But this fellow in the middle, he hadn't, he didn't deserve all of this. And then he looked at Jesus and he said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And what did Jesus say? He said, today. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. See now, if you and I were on the ground, we'd, we'd given up on both those criminals. Well, we'd given up on all three of them. <laughs> there's, there's nowhere to go except to the cemetery after you go to Golgotha. 
But here's one fellow just about to enter into eternity, and yet God had set His affection on that one man before the foundation of the world, and He was going to bring him to faith. Now, we don't know who those people are. We don't know among our friends who they are. We don't know among our family who those people are. That's why we should keep praying. That's why we should keep witnessing. That's why we should, we should live the kind of lives that are upright and would bring glory to the Lord because it's never too late until folks take their last breath. See, we'd have written off the, both those guys next to Jesus. But God didn't, didn't write both of them off. Sure was getting late for that fellow. And it was getting late, apparently, for Nebuchadnezzar. But God set His affection up. So let's not give up on people. Notice from your um, <clears throat> notes there, question one from the Westminster Shorter Confession is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer that we teach our children is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We need to remember God is the one who is worthy of glory. You and I are not. Because of our innate sinfulness, we tend to receive glory for ourselves or at least ascribe it to ourselves. Now, there's no sin in achieving satisfaction from what we're doing as long as we recognize that it's God who gives us the gifts and the ability to achieve success and we don't diminish in any way the glory and honor due to God for the work that He has done and is doing in our lives. There's the power of the personal testimony. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The reason God hates sinful pride is because it diminishes His glory. Notice the passage from James chapter 4. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will free from you. Why would you even introduce the devil into this, into this warning? Well, remember Lucifer's great sin? It was pride and resulted in his fall. You can read about that. We don't have time to look at it now, but you can read about that in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. If God is sovereign, and He certainly is, then that means that you and I are not. We can humble ourselves or we can be humbled by God. And I point you, and we'll close here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and following. Paul writes, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. Why are you saved? It is because God chose to do so. And someone asked me, one time I said, do you think we choose God? I said, well, not according to Jesus. 
He reminded His disciples, you didn't choose Me. I chose you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Is our boast in Christ or is our boast in ourselves? You know, I hear folks say, Alton, boy, I, I look back on my life and I just thank God for the day that I made my decision to come to Jesus. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you've come to Jesus too. But you know, when you think about it, it almost sounds as like, it almost sounds as if we're patting ourselves on the back for this decision that we made to come to Jesus. Why don't we just say, I just thank God for the day that He had mercy on me because I was headed in the opposite direction. I was like Paul on the road to Damascus. I, you know, Maybe I wasn't trying to kill Christians or put them in jail, but I was sure headed in the wrong direction. And God didn't ask my permission. He just stopped me dead in my tracks and turned me around and put my feet on a rock pulling me out of the miry clay and put a song of praise to God in my mouth. That's what we ought to say. Not, I thank God for the day I was smart enough to choose Jesus. No. I just thank God for the day that in His mercy that He chose me and He brought that to fruition when He sent His Spirit and brought me to life inside and gave me as gifts faith and repentance so that as all of a sudden as I came to spiritual life and I saw myself for the sinner that I am and I saw Jesus for the marvelous Savior that He is, I expressed the faith that God had given me. I expressed that toward Jesus. And I repented I changed my mind about God and I changed my mind about Jesus. But the reason I did was because they were gifts to me. And that's why I praise God for His great grace and His mercy. Some folks fuss at me sometimes and say, Bradshaw, every time somebody asks you how you doing, you always give them the same answer. Better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. Can't you come up with something better than that? I said, no, there is nothing better than that. The last thing I want God to give me is what I deserve. I just want His grace and His mercy as He's always given that to me and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I praise Him for that. Father, thanks again for Your kindness and mercy and grace and goodness and love. Lord, we're just overwhelmed with that mercy and grace. Lord, You are God. We are not. You are the one who sets up kingdoms and pulls kingdoms down. You are the one who sets up kings and pulls kings down. Lord, in these days, we sometimes fret over the things that we see going on politically. And while we know it's the responsible thing to do to, to vote our conscience and to contact our congressmen and to contact our senators, and we should do that, we know that in the final analysis that You are the one who is in charge. Thank You, Lord, that we can take comfort in that. 
Thank you. Thank you for showing us that it's not enough just to hear about Jesus. It's not enough just to see Jesus in action. As marvelous as those things can be, but we have to experience Jesus for ourselves. Work in our lives, Lord, that that might be the case for us. Thank You for Your great grace and mercy. We praise You through Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.